Good morning. Uh, what a pleasure, honor, and blessing it is to be with you this morning. It's so great to uh, see so many of you, but also for those of you uh, joining us online, it's so great to uh, be able to uh, bring the word of the Lord to you this morning. Uh, I, uh, as uh, Pastor Cheryl said, I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, I have been here for uh, going on seven years now, which is uh, incredible. It's a, an honor and a blessing to uh, be able to lead the youth of our church, to be able to uh, be able to uh, really influence the next generation of leaders. But this morning, I'm excited to share a word from my heart uh, that the Lord has uh, laid on my heart, but has given me comfort um, and uh, has walked me through some uh, tough seasons of life. And so this morning, uh, the sermon is titled Planting Our Sorrow, but uh, really today's sermon is going to be about sorrow, but it's also about joy. And so uh, we're going to start today off by reading from two different uh, chapters in the book of Psalm. We're going to read from uh, Psalm 39, uh, verses 12 and 13, and then we're also going to read Psalm 126, uh, 1 through 6. It should be on the screen uh, so that you can follow along as I read. Psalm 39, 12 through 13 says, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, as a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy my life again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 126, 1 through 6 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed dreams. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is the reading of God's word. And so this morning, you can tell that obviously uh, those two passages in the book of Psalm are really about sorrow, grief, uh, suffering. And today we're going to be looking at uh, kind of the book of Psalms. What I love about the Psalms is that when you read uh, some of the teachings and some of the great doctrines of the faith, they stretch your mind. But when you read the Psalms, they go deep into your heart. They, uh, they, they kind of drill down into the emotions and the motives of your heart. The beautiful thing about the Psalms is that it gives us a gospel third way to deal with our feelings and how to handle them. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a way that Pastor Irene talks about it. She talks about this gospel third way for a lot of things. And I think the Psalms gives us a gospel third way for how to deal with uh, our emotions, our feelings, our sorrow. And so uh, this is a cool way for us to see a gospel route to deal with uh, how we're doing emotionally in comparison to really what the religious culture kind of tells us to do with our feelings and how uh, the, the secular culture tells us to deal with our feelings. See, uh, secular culture kind of just talks about kind of bowing to our emotions, that what we feel is truth and that we should just always bow to how we're feeling. But almost the opposite, the antithesis of that in religious culture is that uh, we have to almost stuff our emotions, that we can't feel 
very much or really express those emotions. And the Psalms um, that we just read have really spoken to my heart over the past few years. Um, and that's because uh, me and my wife have struggled for several years to have a child. We've gone through about three years of, of infertility and that's a difficult road to travel especially when you have a God-given desire to be fruitful and multiply, especially when you have a God-given desire to be parents and to raise up children of your own to know and love the Lord, uh, infertility can be difficult. And so um, I guess some of that's even compiled when uh, you have uh, you know, parents and in-laws who desperately wanna be grandparents and you are not really able to kind of deliver the goods, you know what I mean? And so uh, it's, it's a tough road. Uh, infertility is hard and not being able to uh, father your own children is difficult. And so uh, the beautiful thing about this morning is that uh, Psalms, sorrow, grief can lead to joy. And so that's what we're gonna talk about. Um, I'm gonna start by saying this. Um, Typically, in religious circles, people are very uncomfortable with their feelings. By and large, they want to deny the depth, the intensity of their feelings. And on the other hand, secular people tend to express their feelings and almost see feelings as um, basically an end of their own. Right? That almost feelings are God and that they are, they're a good way to kind of just run your whole life. They are the ultimate thing. But once you discover um, that this is not how the gospel kind of talks about how to deal with things, you are, no longer have to bow to your feelings or stuff your feelings, but the Psalms talks about basically a, a third way, a way that we can handle them in a way that uh, honestly honors God. And so we can be aware of our feelings and honor people around us. The Psalms uh, basically suggests that uh, what we should do is plant and pray our feelings, bring them before God and let them uh, be processed with him. This is something that's close to my heart because honestly, I have not done well in the past with my emotions. Um, sometimes uh, I let them rule and reign in the past. I've let them rule, I've let them reign. I've acted on emotion and passion and just kind of bulldozed people. Um, but I would say even more recently, uh, I've struggled to even access my feelings, to feel sort of numb and to not really react reasonably or responsibly with other people. And not only that, to not really re be able to respond reasonably or responsibly with their emotions. Um, so this morning, I wanna share with you three things to do with your sorrow. 2020 has been a doozy of a year, right? And so now we're in 2021, but here's the, here's the catch about 2020, is that right now in this new year, you're probably starting to feel some of the after effects of all the stuff that happened in 2020. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of carryover. Um, you know, I think of it kind of like a tsunami where tsunamis start by an earthquake that happens somewhere in the ocean floor. But then eventually that seismic wave pushes the water to a point where it starts to rise up on the beach. And then eventually a long time after the actual earthquake, do you get this massive wave that just like knocks people out, right? That's kind of what I am feeling, predicting that 2021 is gonna be like, is that we're gonna kind of feel the aftershock, that tsunami wave that comes over us because of all the sorrow, the grief, the loss, the hurt that we endured, not being able to do the normal things we like to do. 
Did you know that in the Psalms, there are different categories of Psalms in the, in the book? And that one of the Psalms, or one of, the, one of those categories is a category called Lamentations. Lamentations are, are really what uh, the, a biblical commentator would say is passionate expressions of grief or sorrow. This category, uh, every biblical commentator would tell you is the largest category within the Psalms. So what is the first thing that we should do when it comes to dealing with our emotions, our grief, our sorrow, our hurt, our pain? The first thing that I think we as Christians should do is that we should expect sorrow. I want to read uh, one to, uh, Psalm 126, 1 through 6 again, and I'm going to break it down as we read it. I want to kind of talk about each verse a little bit. It says, uh, one, uh, Psalm 126, 1 through 6 says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream dreams. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying with them sheaves. So I want to start up, you know, if you look at the first kind of half of this uh, section of verses, it's um, kind of talking about and looking at the remembering of good, the goodness of God, right? So it says, oh man, God has restored our fortunes. He's done all these good things and he's done so much good that not only have we been blessed, not only have we noticed the blessings that God has brought upon us, but the people around us have noticed, right? It says that the, the nations look and say, the Lord has done great things for them. That's how, good the, that's how good God has been to us. But then in the middle, we see this little break and the tone changes. It goes from celebrating and, you know, you know dreaming dreams and filling with laughter and tongue, uh, our t- tongues filled with songs of joy to a cry for help, for an ask, a plea, begging God to restore them again. So what does this tell us? Well, I think it first shows us that walking with the Lord doesn't prevent pain, hurt, sorrow, or even tragedy in our lives. And what do we learn here? Well, I think what we learn is that we should expect sorrow as Christians, expect lots and lots of tears. However, most of us don't because as Christians, we have this little myth and the myth goes exactly like this. Well, if I'm a little, good little boy or if I'm a good little girl and I'm a good little Christian and I do all the things that God wants me to do and I follow all the rules, then God would never do anything that would, would hurt me. He would never let anything bad happen to me. But if we look carefully at this uh, section of scripture, we don't really know what happens here in this passage, but we know that it's terrible. Because what happens is they're celebrating and then all of a sudden they say this verse and it says, it says in this verse, it says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a, is a desert. So it's saying restore to us like streams in the desert. So basically they're saying their lives is like a desert. What you don't notice here though, is any cry of repentance. That's important. Do you see anything here? Do you see any words of sin or asking for forgiveness? No. And that's because hardship has occurred, but it's not come from a sinful act. And what does that tell us? Well, that means that 
a lot of Christians are operating on a daily basis in bad theology. And that, in reality, Christians should expect sorrow. Not just uh, because we live in a world where there's hurt and there's brokenness, but because Christians tend to think consciously or subconsciously that if something is going wrong in their life, it's because they've done something wrong. And so that we start to say things to ourselves like, well, you know, I must be doing something wrong here. I'm, I, you know, I've not been really doing my devotions and I, you know, I probably should pray more. And so that's why all this bad stuff's happening to me. But the truth is that practically and theologically, if you believe like that, what you're doing is that you're saying that you believe that you are saved and therefore rewarded or punished by your good or bad actions. And simply that's just not the truth. That's not what the gospel says. And I'm not saying that sometimes bad things happen to you due to your sin. I'm saying that that's, that's natural. That does happen, right? We do have to face the consequences of our sin. But what I am saying is that that doesn't happen in every, every case. Not every single time that something bad happens to you is it because you've done something wrong and that God is just ready to still, you know, deck you. That's not how it works. Uh, the Bible indicates that becoming a, person of, uh, be- becoming a person of faith, if anything, may cause you to have more sorrow. And well, you may say, Josh, how does that, how's that work out? How can that be? Well, let me give you two quick reasons. Uh, in the Old Testament, God is speaking to uh, Ezekiel, he, and he uses this metaphor. Uh, he says during the conversation that he, God, removes our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And that same metaphor is used in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Um, And he talks about this during conversion. And what he says is that basically he makes our hearts, when we accept God's grace, when we accept his love, he makes our hearts more of a heart. That he turns our hearts from being stone to flesh. He makes them softer. He makes them more vulnerable, more touchable. He's going to, to, uh, you know, soften us. And what then happens to us is that we become more affected by the evil and the pain and the hurt and the disappointment and the sorrow and the tragedy around us. Because our hearts are able to feel, our hearts are able to reflect the heart of Jesus. And, you know, the things that Jesus hurts for, we're going to hurt for. So in the past, you used to cope, you used to use self-defense mechanisms to not feel, but God has changed your heart and he's made it like his. In the past, you would see evil people and you would disdain them. You would even maybe seek revenge on them, but the gospel's changed you. Or you'd look at people that are screwing up their lives and you would say, that's their problem, not mine. Thank the Lord for that. But not now. See, the gospel's changed that. Because see, the gospel shows us the gift that we've received and, and we know that we've not earned it. We've done nothing to deserve it. And at the same time, we can look at these people that we used to disdain, want to seek revenge on, people that uh, in the past we would just say, they're a lost cause. And we would see the potential in those people. We'd see the beauty in those people. So no longer do we have hatred for them, but we have compassion for them. And that oftentimes uh, is going to hurt because you're going to feel for those people. You're going to see the pain that they're in and say, man, I wish, that, I wish there was a different way for you. Um, if I'm honest here, I, I think if, um, many of us at this point in our uh, current day and age, our current climate, I think a lot of us right now um, are allowing our hearts to become more calloused, to turn back to stone, especially in our current climate politically and online. 
That we had a heart of flesh, but it's almost turning back to this heart of stone where I see animosity and anger and hatred towards the other side, the other people. And that the honestly, digitally, especially, we don't have to come into human reality flesh, right? We don't have to come into flesh contact with people. I don't have to see people's really, their real reactions. And so I can just kill them on Facebook, but I don't have to see how they really react. I don't see how it penetrates their heart. And so we just are allowing our hearts to just stone up, honestly. I personally have to guard against this all the time. That's why I talk about it this morning because I constantly am having to guard myself against this. Um, uh, we were with some friends last night and they're just talking about, um, they took basically these first three weeks of January to fast from social media and are talking about the life-giving joy that that's having on their, on their marriage, on their life in general. It's because they're not being pounded and constantly bombarded by the hatred calloused hearts of others. And we've got to reflect that as Christians. As Christians, as we grow in grace, we should expect to cry more. Do you see how illogical it is for most Christians to say both they want to be like Christ, but at the same time say that they want to walk close to God so that uh, nothing horrible will happen to them? Uh, I mean, I would say that Jesus was walking pretty well with the Lord, wouldn't you say? And yet, I wouldn't say that nothing bad happened to him, uh, especially considering the fact that the people that he came to save and redeem killed him, and not only killed him, but killed him brutally, right? If you don't expect to start, uh, have sorrow in your life, you will always be crying about two things. You'll be crying about the thing that grieves you and about the fact that you're grieved. If you don't expect sorrow, you're always gonna be grieving about the thing that grieves you, but also about the fact that you're grieved. Not only will you be crying about the thing that makes you distraught, but simultaneously, you'll be saying consciously or, or semi-consciously, why is this happening to me? Why me, God? I've been living a pretty good life. I'm not doing all these horrible things. What good is faith? What good is all this? God, where are you and why would you let this happen to me? If you live like this, you will sink under its weight. I guarantee you. Um, you must adjust your expectations to expect sorrow. You must remove that hurtful theology from your heart. How do I know? Well, because I, well, I want to first preface this by telling you that I have permission to share this story. Um, but I have been uh, able to share uh, 10 years of life with my wife. And uh, this is one thing that she's really struggled with. If you know my wife at all, you know how wonderful, kind, and compassionate Ashley is. Uh, I may have told you this little story before, I can't remember. Um, but when me and Ashley first started dating in college, I was her first boyfriend. Um, uh, when we started dating, uh, we had been dating for about two, three months, and then we went to Christmas break. Um, if you know anything about me, I, I am in great relationship with my parents. I talk to them all the time, even though they live in Colorado. Um, so I remember uh, spending a couple months dating Ashley, and then I call my dad on the phone, and I talk to him about Ashley. And uh, I tell Ashley, or I tell my dad that I, I don't think Ashley sins, and that I think that she might be an angel. <laughs> now, 
You can laugh at me. It's all right. That's whatever, you know. But here's the other thing. Did you know that in Hebrews 13.2, it says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. See, I had studied that passage in high school. And so I believe that. Not just believed it. I believe it. And so when I was interacting with Ashley and seeing her heart towards me, I was like, whoa, whoa, I have never met somebody like this. This girl must be an angel. She must be a divine being because I don't think, because I get mad, she doesn't get mad. I want to fight somebody. She's like, oh, let's forgive them. And I, I want to play a game and be competitive. She's like, I want you to win. I'm like, okay, all right. I can't handle you right now. But um, I say all of that. Because with, throughout our, our struggle with infertility, Ash has really wrestled with the question, why me? Ash, um, I, I know she lives a life that honors God and she has felt that she's done basically everything that she knows how to do to, to live a, a faithful, obedient life to God. Ashley didn't grow up a Christian. She became a Christian midway through her teen years when some friends invited her to church in Lima, Ohio. And from that point on, she's really lived to honor God through and through. Like I said, she didn't have a boyfriend until me, and that was when she was in her 20s. She's a good-looking woman. So I'm just telling you, I mean, she, she has tried to live a life that honors God. So we have had to work through together the gritty reality that just because we live a life for God doesn't mean that God owes us anything. It's easy to get into a place where we feel like we have checked all of the figurative God boxes or we've marked off all the Christian checklists and now God owes us something. When we do this, we're really just trying to play God, manipulate God. We want to feel like we've deserved something and when that doesn't happen, because God owes us nothing, we get upset. We also have a tendency in this mindset to go and get what we want when we feel like God is not giving us what we deserve that if we've done all the right things and we should receive this thing and then we don't get it, we wanna go and usurp God. We wanna go over God. We wanna go around God and just go get it for ourselves because we feel like, you know what, we've earned it. Thanks, Pastor Jake, for that insight. But this is, this is like legitimate. Like this is a real challenge that we as a couple have faced and we have had to surrender our rights knowing that God is in control and is the giver of all good gifts. So I want to pause here to say to you that if you are someone who says that they have never felt the presence of God or that you struggle to express your emotions, which has caused you to never really connect with God in an emotional or spiritual level, I would say that it's time for you to pray for God to give you a heart of flesh or restore to you a heart of flesh. I can say that too because I've often been plagued for a long time with an intellectual relationship with God and not a spiritual emotional relationship with God. And God is not head knowledge. He's heart knowledge. And you have to do heart work if you want to get to know God intimately. And so some of that is just humbling yourselves and asking God to give you a heart of flesh and remove your heart of stone. There was years I couldn't connect with God. I couldn't even cry but I've had to ask God to give me a tender heart. And one thing that I can say is that when we got married, before we got married, Ashley was praying for me to become more tenderhearted and it's worked. If you ever saw me at like my first graduation service, I like cried the whole way through. I couldn't even talk. It was embarrassing. Like, so I'm like, Ashley, chill on the prayers, okay? Um, so, but, but that's what we gotta do. We gotta, we gotta be praying for a heart of flesh.
Uh, secondly, what is the second thing we got to do with our sorrow? The second thing we have to do is we have to plant our sorrow and our tears. It says in 126, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying with them sheaves. Now, living in our area of the world, we are very familiar with farming. We are very familiar with harvesting, with planting, but this is no ordinary farmer here. Uh, in this poetic image uh, that's used here, uh, this farmer is not planting with seeds, but is planting with tears. What it's telling us here is that, uh, like I stated earlier, we can't just ignore our sorrow and tears, but we also just can't dump our sorrow and tears. We can't just stuff our emotions or just spill them out. You have to plant them. Religious people, especially men, definitely guilty here, tend to stuff the tears, stuff the hurt. We just push it down. And on the other end, I'd say secular people, younger generation, some of my, some of my teenagers uh, tend to just haphazardly express them. But neither are described here in this text. See, here's what happens. See, if I, take a, if I take some of my hurt, my seed, right? I got some seed here. If I take this seed and I, I, I say, you know what? This is no good. I just put it in my back pocket and just walk away. What harvest does that produce? Nothing. There's no nutrients in my gene pocket, right? So you're not gonna produce any harvest. But on the other end, if I take my hurt and my sorrow and I, I decide, you know what? I'm just gonna walk six feet out into life and then just pour all my, all my sorrow right here. What harvest does that produce? Nothing. The only way to get a harvest is to take those seeds and intentionally plant them methodically, faithfully to receive a harvest of joy. Only when you see your sorrow as an opportunity for growth and fruitfulness will it become growth and fruitfulness. Now, I believe that God doesn't waste our pain. The sorrow that we encounter is ultimately used for our good. However, I do believe that we can reject that goodness. We can waste away our tears and our sorrow if we are not intentional. Scripture shows us here that if we are intentional and we plant our sorrow, there will be a harvest of joy. This goes even beyond the idea that tears give way to joy. See, in Psalm 30, it says that weeping may carry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But this scripture goes even deeper, and it's saying that if you plant your tears, your tears will, be, will produce joy. That you don't have to just wait for all the tears to run out that we can plant them and they will produce joy for us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's saying here that our sorrows are achieving or producing an eternal weight of glory. The sorrows that are planted change us, which is really what we need. Not every circumstance that you encounter is going to change instantly or even at all. But we can change and continually be changed. The circumstance that I find myself in at the moment, I don't know if it's going to change. But God is changing me in the midst of this moment. 
It's bringing a harvest of joy in our hearts. Or even what is being said here is that maybe the kind of joy that we really need is the kind of joy that's only produced through sorrow. Did you catch that? Maybe the joy that you needed was only produced through the hardship of 2020. Maybe the things that you were holding on to for comfort, for security, needed to be stripped away so you could see the need for Jesus. There's a little song that's written by a, a girl named Laura Story. It's called The Blessing. And in this song, the chorus says this. What if our blessings come through raindrops? What if our healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of the greatest thirst that a world can't satisfy? And what if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise? See, there is, there is a type of joy that is only produced through sorrow, through hurt, through pain. There is a type of growth that is only produced through hurt, through pain, through sorrow. And let me tell you, we often don't grow. We often don't change when life is a breeze. When I'm sitting by the pool in Florida, you know, with my smoothie and I'm kicked back getting my tan on, I don't really think God's like, wow, Josh, you're really growing spiritually today. <laughs> man, you love that Bahama breeze smoothie. Like you, man, I can just feel the spirit rising in you. Like, I think it's in hardship, this change in growth produced. So how do you plant your sorrow? That's like a, I'm, not, I'm like talking up in like the sky right now. What does it mean to plant your tears? Like how, how do you do that? Well, here's the third step. The third practical step is to pray your tears. We got to expect tears. Even when you're walking with the Lord, you have to plant your sorrow. Then you have to pray your sorrow. What you'll notice in uh, Psalm 39, that's the, that's the first Psalm that I read that we haven't really touched on yet. Um, what you'll notice here about both 39 and 129 um, is that they're laments, but they're also prayers. That these are the words of desperate, hurt, and sorrowful people. But what changes them in the midst of all that is that they have all this pain, but then they take all this pain to God. And here's some truth that you need to know is that one, God understands your weeping. God understands your weeping. Psalm 39 is unique because in the end, it ends in a very odd and really sad way, truthfully. Usually in the Psalms, if you read them, maybe you've read them before. If you read in the Psalms, what you'll typically see is that uh, in the Psalms, typically David will write about something hurt, hurtful or fearful or something bad going on. But then he kind of ends with like this moment of hope or like some great word that like everybody wants to quote. Like nobody wants to quote the top of the Psalm, but at the end, there's some great one liner that we all want to quote. And that's what we kind of hold on to. Uh, Psalm 16, for instance, is filled with fear, but at the end... It ends by saying in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. However, 
in Psalm 39, it ends very differently. Okay? Psalm 39 ends like this. It basically says, get away from me, God. Get away from me so that I can enjoy my last moments alive in peace. You're like, hold up. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's what it says. So Psalm 39 says, hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, as a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Then catch this part. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and I am no more. That is an odd verse. And it has puzzled myself and many people before and after me probably because at best it seems like it's bad theology in a moment of crisis and at worst it feels like it's an error in the scripture. However, a biblical commentator writes uh, and explains this ending that not only kind of helps us grasp this, but also brings peace to us. Uh, Derek Kidner writes this, and I quote, the prayer, look away from me, makes no more sense than Peter's depart from me. Yet God knows when to treat this plea as he does when Peter says it in Luke 5, or when the crowd says it in Matthew 34. Catch this. The very presence of such prayers in the scripture is the witness to his understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. So you have wondered for a long time, why is this verse in here? This makes no sense. It's bad theology. Why is he saying, get away from me, God? I want to enjoy my last moments of my life in peace without you around. But it's encouragement to us because what I hear uh, God saying is that he understands our feelings. And he understands that when our feelings so overwhelm us that we say stupid, desperate, even theologically incorrect things that he gets it. He understands so much that he even gives us an example in scripture. And why would he do this? To communicate this to us. I think God says to us this morning, it's safe for you to pray to me like that. It's safe for you to pour out your deepest feelings, your deepest hurts to me. Psalm 39 shows us where our deepest feelings, sorrows, anger, where they all belong. God is a safe place for us to express our sorrow. Uh, they don't belong deep in our hearts or just dumped on the floor. Ultimately, they belong not pan or packaged or manicured or, or bundled up, but we've got to bring them to God. When we trust in God's grace and that he understands what's going to happen in our lives, then we can start to plant and pray our sorrow. Without this, we'll never trust God and we will always stuff or dump and not bring to him what we need to bring to him because we don't trust him or we, we won't trust him. Taking and praying our sorrow will prevent our sorrow from turning to bitterness, self-pity, impatience, and anger. The beauty of taking all of the deepest pain in our lives to God is that he's truly able to turn our sorrow to joy, to bring about beauty from ashes, to make creation out of the dust. And that's why I want to end today on a note of hope. As Ashley and I have journeyed through this deep valley of hardship, God has given us a promise that has eternal sustaining power. And it's found in Isaiah 43, 19. And it says this, see, 
I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Over the past uh, three years, we have been praying and desiring to grow our family. Through this time, God has taught us so much about ourselves and our faith. When the things are out of control in our life, when things are out of control in your life, you're faced with a decision. And that decision is either to trust God or to walk away. When you're, when you're encountering the deepest hurt, the deepest pain, the deepest trials of your life, you are, you are questioned. You, you ask yourself this, am I going to walk or am I going to stay? Am I going to leave or am I going to trust? And uh, what we've learned is that our hope comes from the Lord. Our hope and our help come from the Lord. Our love for Christ has grown and has taught us to rely on him and not on ourselves. The gospel is a beautiful picture of adoption. These are our adoption shirts that we uh, have. We are in the process of adopting right now. Um, and the gospel is a beautiful uh, picture of adoption because God has adopted all of us into his family. God is faithful and he knows the desires of your heart. His ways are not our ways, but we can trust his heart. When you think all is hope, when you think all hope is lost, it is not. He is making something beautiful. See, he's doing a new thing. Can you not see it? Do you not perceive it? He is making a way in the wilderness, streams in the desert. So I want to conclude this service by singing a song of hope, of joy. I'm going to have the band come, um, and they're going to play one more song for us. But I would like to invite you right now in this, these last moments to worship, to put your pen and paper down, to you know, push your purse and cell phone to the side, at home, to just maybe uh, put out the distractions. Maybe you need to kneel down at your couch and pray about the hurt and loss that you've encountered over the past year. Maybe we need to sing and stand. Maybe we need to pray the words of the song. Um, maybe if you're in the room this morning, it might be best that you come down and come to the altar and, and pray. Maybe today, this morning is the morning that you pray for a restoration of a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. God loves you this morning. And I don't want you to miss this moment, okay? I know you kind of feel like you're getting antsy, the service is over, but don't waste this moment. God is here, he wants to meet with you. So I would love for you to just take whatever posture at home or here that you need to, to worship God to pray and plant your sorrow.
Aren't you thankful for God's faithfulness? He makes a way when there is no way. But I believe I'll see him do it again. Let's pray, God. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your, your love, your truth. Thank you for Psalm 39. Thankful that you know how to handle us when we speak 
when we're desperate. God, thank you for being a loving and compassionate God. Thank you for making us and changing us even in the hardship of life. God, you are so good to us and I ask that you just help us to see this next week, whatever comes as an opportunity for growth, for maturation and to have a heart that continually is formed in your likeness. But help us to be love and grace to a hurting and desperate world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.